Holy and gracious God, having word, heard both of your scriptures proclaimed, having sung songs of praise and songs of old, let us continue to hear a word from you this morning so that we might be transformed by that word and somehow be that light, that hope for the world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so um, I had a really harsh reality that happened to me um, actually this year. It was the first time in my ministry that this has ever happened, and I hope it's the last time, but two times has happened, probably in the past three months. One of which uh, was a family, and I'm not going to name the family, it talked about their daughter wanting to go to church to see God. And of course, the mom and dad were like, yeah, great, yeah, we can encounter God in church, right? You can encounter God at all kinds of places, but we'll encounter God in church. And then come to find out um, that while they were in the service, all of a sudden they uh, looked at me and then go, Mom, that's God. <laughs> there he is. Or they said, Mom, I didn't see God today. It was a Sunday that I was gone. And I just like sank. And I, I made very clear, like, go up to the child and say, I'm not God. No, not God, right? You know, not there, right? I'd never want that to happen. And I, when it happened, I was like, oh my gosh, we need to do, I don't know, what do we need to do? Come on, parents, help me out. Make sure if your child says they want to go to church to see God, that they clarify with them that it is not Pastor Brian, okay? I want to make sure that that is there. Because one of the things that I am well aware of is that I am not God, right? And I am not perfect by any stretch of the terms. And on top of that, that's exactly what I feel like this scripture is like, right? It's here's the blessed life, and here's what it means to be the good life. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, blessed are all these people. And then Jesus says, and you, my friends, are a city upon a hill. Let your light shine for everyone so that they might see the light of the world. And that makes me somewhat uncomfortable. And if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, that's okay. Just keep reading the scripture, right? Because Jesus then goes on to start saying all sorts of other things. Like, you've heard the law of the prophets, and this is what it says. But did you know that it's not just enough to murder someone? It's also when you are angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart. Or did you know that adultery is not just sleeping with someone? It's also when you have lustful thoughts in your mind. And he goes on to all of these things that literally make it impossible to live up to the standard that Jesus has. But, my friends, don't worry. You're the salt of the world and the light of the world. We'll put you on the pedestal for all the world to see the standards that we're really uncomfortable saying that we live up to, right? I think some of the best Christians I know, and by best Christians I know, there are people that I find their faith inspiring, and those people are often the people with one attribute in common, humility, humility. That they're the people that are often the first to recognize that they don't have all the answers, and also the people to recognize that their life isn't perfect. So what do we do as Christians with this juxtaposition of God calling us to be this blessed life, this happy life, and calling us to be beacons of the world, of hope and light, to proclaim the good news to all of creation? I certainly don't think it's by going around telling people we're God or letting people think that we are God. Let's just put that there on the shelf for us. But one of the things I think that is a fallacy when we think about being good in life is this idea that being good has to be 
perfect. In fact, I don't know how, if you were a grew up Methodist, but has anyone ever heard the phrase Christian perfection? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few people online, you can comment in. Yeah. Well, you might not have, but if you've been in a Methodist church, we stopped talking about that at some point. But did you know that Christian perfection is one of the hallmarks of, quote-unquote, Methodist theology? Yeah, believe it or not. I actually, my first introduction to what it means to be Methodist was a, a small book. It's a little red book. I have it on my shelf still. It's called On Christian Perfection, written by this guy named John Wesley. Anyone ever heard of him? Yeah? Yeah, you grew up Methodist and you've heard of John Wesley? Okay, that's good because he started, him and Charles, and uh, the, the movement at, at, you know, at Oxford University, they had started this movement that became known as the Methodists that then became known as the Methodist Church, and we can go on to a history lesson of what that looks like and how. But one of the things that Charles, or John and Charles were convinced of, Charles less than John, is that at some point in our lives, we can attain Christian perfection, he called it. And friends, I saw the cover of the book, and even as I was reading the book, I was like, this guy is bonkers. Like, he has no idea. I was a Methodist at the time, mind you, okay? Uh, I, he had no idea what he's talking about. And even still, if you have grown up Methodist your entire life, perhaps, you probably haven't heard the phrase Christian perfection because it still seems crazy, right? It just doesn't seem real. How could anyone be perfect? Well, one of the videos I saw recently was a video of an education person. I had to kind of process it for a little bit. And this education person was uh, kind of revolting against standard education. And in fact, she says, I don't want my kids to grow up in our education systems right now because they teach us uh, fallacies. And she said, because we're taught that you have to memorize a set of information and get perfect scores on the first time through on a test right? I mean, you have to do well on your tests. If you don't do well on your tests, you fail. And if you fail, then you can't move on. And the reason she said that this was, you know, bad teaching is because we all know that failure is a part of life, right? I mean, we fail so that we can succeed. If you listen to any of the CEOs out there, you know, whether it's Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or the CEO of Pixar and Disney, they will tell you phrases like, fail forward, fail forward, which is a phrase that not kind of sit on your failures, but in fact to take them and to let them launch you into the future. I talked about being a soccer coach, and one of the things that I talk about with my boys on a regular basis is what scouts look for in players. One of, one of the things that scouts look for in a, players, in a player, the first one is how they start the game. You know, do they start it at the pace of the team or do they start it at the pace that they're capable of? Because that tells you a lot about their ability. The second is, what do they do after they make a mistake? What do they do after they make a mistake? Because if they put their head down and they start sulking and all their performance goes from here to here, they don't want them on their team. They don't want them on their team because they know that that's going to take the whole team down and they're unable to now continue to perform at the level they're supposed to. But if they make a mistake, they pick their head up and they go out there and try just as hard, he said that's a marker of a good player because they're going to go out and not let those things affect them. Fail forward. And I know that many of you have taken many leadership courses and done different stuff like that. And so you all know this idea about failure and the positive effects that it can have as we learn from them and we grow from them. And so when we hear the words, you're 
the city on the hill, right? Or people are looking to us for leadership in their faith. You know, we often think of it as this idea that we're expected to be perfect, right? Like John Wesley says, Christian perfection. But that, I think, misses the point. It misses the point. See, because kind of deeper within John Wesley's theology of Christian perfection is this word called grace. Have you ever heard that word? Yeah, grace. Unmerited gift of God's love for us. And I, I have spent, so I'm a little bit on the theology because I, I'm on the Board of Ordained Ministries for the Calpac region of the United Methodist Church. Lots of fancy words. Let me unpack them for you for a second. That we have a region of the United Methodist Church, Southern California, Hawaii, where we are, Guam, and Saipan, and that is known as the Calpac region. So anyone who is looking to become a pastor in that region has to go and sit before a board of pastors and lay people, and they have to write papers, similar to how a, a doctoral student would kind of write a thesis and then have to defend that thesis to a board or something like that. And so we listen to their theology and their ministry and so on and so forth. But one of the key components is what do we believe grace to be? So here's your Methodist 101. You ready for this? We believe grace can be separated or understood as a movement of God's love in three ways. One is the grace that goes before us. I say all the time, and you've heard me perhaps if you've been here more than one Sunday, because I do say it all the time, is that God loves us whether we like it, know it, believe it or not. And that's what we call God's provenient grace. It goes before you, period. When you were a child and groaning about going to Sunday school, or when you were a child not going to church at all, God's work was in you, whether you like it, know it, or believe it or not. And if you never go to church your entire life, you never participate in any sort of faith understanding or want to grow, God's work is within you no matter what. I like to say, Jesus came, lived and died and rose from the dead. And you had nothing to do with that as far as like actually making that happen in the world. Provenient grace. It's there. Like it, believe it, know it. It's there. And then we have this move. We have this move that we term as justifying grace, which we could talk about for a long time after. But really, it's the recognition of God's grace. That the moment we recognize it as God's grace in our life, as God's gift of love, is a minute when it shifts from being something not understood to something we're starting to see and understand. But that is interconnected for what John and Charles Wesley would say to this other movement of grace. And that is called sanctifying grace. So get your notebook out, get ready for your Board of Ordained Ministries interview. It is provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace, and this is key for us as Methodists, very important, is that did you know that we don't do altar calls very often here at this church? Anyone know that? <laughs> Have you been to a Methodist church that does a lot of altar calls? Probably not, because we don't put the emphasis on this statement that I believe in Jesus as saving us for eternal life. We think it's important to believe in Jesus, but it doesn't end there with belief. That belief has to make its way into practice. That we grow in our understanding and our knowledge and our love of God. And that, friends, is what John and Charles would argue as sanctifying grace. But did you know a key component to growth 
is failing. You know, sanctifying grace, this idea of go, getting better in our lives of faith, is not something where we all of a sudden make a decision to follow Jesus, and then every other day is good from then on, and we make all right choices. Yeah? Has anyone else that happened to you? <laughs> Made all perfect choices? In fact, I like to think of it almost like this like circular pattern, right? It's, it's as bad as it sounds. Whereas that we continue to find ourselves in recognition of problems in our lives and the world, of learning to respond to them, and of changing our actions and changing our direction in life. A simple phrase for what I think that we're, the project that we're in is being better versions of ourselves. But being a better version of yourself is acknowledging what? Your flaws. Recognizing the patterns and the mistakes that you make. And that makes a lot more sense to me than you are the light on the hill, you're perfect, and show the world how perfect you are, Christian perfection. It makes a lot more sense to me because it matches a little bit more closely to what Jesus seems to lay out in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not blessed are those who are righteous. And he says, you're a city upon a hill. Let your light shine. You're a salt to the world. Be salty, whatever that means. But then he goes on, right? He goes on, and remember, he's talking to a lot of people who think they know the law, and they think that they're living according to it. So they think that they're righteous. And it's almost as if Jesus, for, for a chunk of the Sermon on the Mount wants to take anyone and everyone who thinks they are capable of living the good life on their own down a notch, right? It doesn't matter where you are on that list. Like, he hits you in your, like, kind of heart, right? That, that one person that you like, are angry with, well, it's the same as murder, or, you know, it's like whatever it is, it's like it twists you and it gets you right where you know that you don't maybe meet the standard entirely. Because I don't think for Jesus, the goal is perfection. We don't make mistakes. Later on during the class that I had to read the book on Christian perfection, the professor that happened to be a Nazarene, which is part of our heritage, okay? So it's part of our Methodist kind of flavor of branch. Um, he kind of won me over by the idea that Christian perfection for John Wesley wasn't about doing all the right things in all the right circumstances. It was about giving ourselves wholeheartedly to a process by which God will continue to make us perfect. To continue to give ourselves to a process of recognizing our faults and trying to make ourselves better. Because if we continue to do that, that means we are perfectly encompassed by the love of God that includes both recognition of our poverty, and by poverty, recognition that we can't do it on our own, and the hope that we can be better. That we can be better. How many of you have uh, read the news and heard anything about Asbury? 
going on. Anyone? Asbury? No? Am I the only one? Wow. Yeah, I got some Southerners over there. There's a revival going on. Anyone know what a revival is? It's like it's a holy, ecstatic movement of the Holy Spirit here on earth. And if you haven't read, I invite you to read because I've read lots of really positive stuff that's happening at this uh, Baptist university called Asbury University. And they also have a seminary and I know some friends in North Carolina that went to Asbury Seminary, and they're having a revival. It's like a 12-day, I think, or the 10th day, I forget. They started a worship service, and then all of a sudden, the worship service hasn't stopped. Like, literally, it literally hasn't stopped. It was like, and friends, I went to a Christian university where you had to go to chapel every day, right? It was just not every day. But it was like three days a week. You had to go to chapel. You could miss so many. And we, when, when that pastor kept going past 40 minutes, that of the conversation, because that's how long they preached for. We were like checking our watches and we were out the door, right? We're done with this. So, you know, it's over. I'm going to study. So a 10-day worship service was unheard of, right? A two-hour worship service. I didn't go to the Wednesday night service because it was too long. <laughs> Full disclosure. But it's been going on for 10 days. And if you read about it, I have friends that are theologians, friends that are pastors, all kinds of people are writing about it. And, and it's a, actually kind of an amazing thing. And it's on the news, and they won't let the news in because they're trying to respect the movement of this. Um, God's doing something in Asbury, kind of unexplainable, just this moment of ecstatic spiritual experience. But here's the thing, though. I'm going to add a caveat to that. So when you read that, it's my challenge to Asbury and our challenge, my challenge to us. As I, I talked about this thing called sanctification that John and Charles believed in, that we can grow in the sanctifying process of God's grace. But it is never only an individual experience. And it's never only a communal experience. It's both. And what he also said is that it's never only this spiritual growth of God's love. But there also has to be a growth of action. And I'm not trying to say be a better person, right? Alone. But be a better world together. Personal and social holiness for John and Charles was absolutely critical. That you could not separate your growth as a Christian and understanding the love of God and love of one another without also understanding more and more the problems and sins of injustice within the world and trying to take action together corporately against those. And so for those of us, our goal is not to be perfect in either standpoint. Because let's be honest, we're not. But the goal for all of us in this Christian journey is to be better, both personally, but then socially as we gather, whether it's our impact on the environment, whether it's uh, racism, whether it's sexism, any of the isms out there, better use of our resources and our finances, I, I don't know, whatever that is, the social component is being better versions of ourselves together socially as it impacts the world and recognizing it. And I say all this as a transition for us because we just talked about the Beatitudes. And we just are talking about being perfect. And you know what we're starting on Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. And friends, Ash Wednesday is not the time of the year when you get imposition of the cross on your heads and then give up chocolate until Easter. It can be. It can be, friends. It can be chocolate. 
But the purpose of fasting, did you know, is to grow in your faith. It's to grow in your faith. So if you're going to give up something for the sake of giving it up, cool. That's awesome. But my question would be, what is that going to do for this growth? What are you going to give up on Ash Wednesday? And hint, I don't know if you knew this, but you get a Sabbath day. Sundays are Sabbaths. You actually don't have to give up on Sundays. I know some people are like hardcore, stick with it. But what are you going to take on? And I invite you to, because we all have areas to take something on to give up so that we can grow. And every year I recommend this challenge that I, I think that you should maybe think about doing two things, not just giving up, but also taking on. Because it's easy to give up chocolate or, you know, to, I don't, I don't know, not eat red meat or whatever it is that you're going to do for a fast. Maybe don't pick up your phone and go to Facebook in the morning. And then take on something else. And I can't answer you that question. My goal today is to talk about sanctification and the power of it. Because the truth is, is that we are a light on a hill. And we're only a light on a hill insofar as we acknowledge our flaws and we try to be better. One of the biggest challenges of being a pastor at a church is that people look at you like you're God. No flaws. One of my goals as a pastor of a church is to recognize I'm flawed, but I'm trying to get better. My goal for all of us is that, that we would recognize our room for growth and that God is in the process personally and socially of making us better versions of ourselves. So let us give ourselves to that process. And somehow, mind you, John was very skeptical of anyone who ever said that they were perfect. But maybe by God's grace, we might find our path on that thing called Christian perfection. I invite you to pray with me. Loving God, being charged to be a city on a hill is no easy task. It's daunting. To be your light in the world, help us have the strength and compassion to recognize our failings, both personally and socially, to also then allow your grace to move in us, to make us holy. And as we move into the Lenten season, we invite you to inspire in us aspects of our lives that we can fast so that we can grow. And in so doing, give ourselves to you so that we might be given away to the world for its healing and its peace. Amen.